It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. It is uh, with great excitement that we step into this new series of Daily Thunder, uh, this particular series. wow, do I have my work cut out for me? And I'm excited about that too. This is possibly the hardest series I could have ever dreamt of doing because I'm going to be taking on some of the most politically charged issues head on. And not because I'm really wanting to, but then you could ask me and say, Eric, I think you really do want to. It's like, okay, maybe. But there's part of me that wriggles and wants to shrink back. And there's another part of me, which is I'm guessing my spirit man, that just loves the challenge of these things. But I feel like we as the church, we've been rocked uh, by the cultural noise to the point where many of us are being silenced. We don't know how to address what is going on and silence seems like a lot easier uh, solution. Uh, This is, it's my desire not to necessarily do what everyone is expecting in this series either. I am going to probably surprise every single one of you a few times along the way with how I address certain things. But let's just start. This is a foundation message for the entire series. And so I'm go- it's going to be very different probably than the other uh, messages in the series, but hopefully it lays a vision out and a foundation of how I'm going to approach through some of these issues. And so you can sort of wrap your mind around what I am doing and we can join together in trying to accomplish that. So here's our our title slide, Spiritual Lessons from Black and White America. Uh, Isn't that uh, already uh, something special right there? You have sort of a symbol of Joe Lewis and Max Schmeling uh, in the ring there. And uh, it is a pivotal moment, 1938, that we're going to address today that is going to be right smack in the middle of the time period I am going to be covering in this series, which I will explain in just a second. This is part one, it's called the fight of the century. Again, this is a foundation laying message. So I'm going, it's sort of hard to say that you could describe an entire century, like what the, uh, what the 20th century was in just like one little storyline. However, the fight of the century, there is something, it's not just two men, a guy named Joe Lewis and a guy named Max Schmeling fighting it out. That's not the fight of the century, truly. There is a ideological war that is taking place in our country that leads to the world in which we live now. And if we're going to effectively address the world in which we live now, I think it's good to know the soil from which it is sprung. So overall in this series, I'm going to be moving from 1914 to 1974. It's somewhat of an odd, uh, you know, you could say what a random selection of dates. And yet it's not random, it is very purposeful. 1914 is going to begin something. And I did an entire series on World War I, Spiritual Lessons from World War I, that if you haven't heard it, I would highly encourage it. It's gonna be tough as a newly arriving Ellerslie student to just go and listen to all of those sessions while we're going through this, but maybe afterwards, huh? To 1974, so you see a picture of it, World War I to Watergate. Now, if you don't know anything about World War I, that is fine. If you don't know anything about Watergate, that's fine. I'm just giving a range of time. If you do know about either of those, you're extremely fascinated right about now. It's like, hmm, why did Eric choose those 60 years to unpack? It's because those 60 years are going to define so much of the world in which we live. 
So I'm also going to give a name to this, and that is the black and white era. Now, it's hard when you hear black and white, you have a tendency to think race immediately. And there's nothing wrong with that because that is going to be one of the black and white issues that we're going to be addressing. But there's actually quite a few black and white issues that are going to take place between 1914 and 1974. So look at this, movies. The advent of motion pictures is going to be in this. The first major motion picture release is in 1915. And then 1927, the television set is going to be invented. It wasn't a very good one, but it's going to be invented. And in the 50s, it's going to launch. And so most of our cultural memories, if not every single one of our cultural memories from this time, is going to be in black and white. It's an odd thing because even color photography was in existence at the time of Watergate, but most of the photojournalists that are taking photos are still using black and white photography. So our memories of this season of history are black and white. Racial tensions, black and white. It is a very real issue in our country during this stretch, and I'm going to say still a very real issue. Dogmatism. When you are black and white on a topic, uh, you know, and you just can't see any blur or any gray in it, that's called dogmatism. And you have no grace for someone else's opinion that is even slightly different than yours. We have a heightened period of time in American history where dogmatism is reigning in our country. And you'll notice we've had a swift return to it in the past few years. The FBI is going to be birthed in 1924 to deal with many of these black and white issues, ironically, and they will be known in history as wearing black and white. With their black suit coats and their black ties and their white uh, shirts, uh, they are going to be the police, the professional policemen that are released into our culture to solve the dilemma of our culture. And uh, I'm not going to try and extrapolate. I'm, trying, I'm gonna try and not make too many comments about modern politics and modern FBI things. Just to try and restrain myself, I want you to begin to fill in gaps and blanks. I actually just wanna lay a foundation for you and get your mind churning so that we are not products of modern media, but that we actually can think for ourselves and understand the world in which we live so that we can effectively help it. So this series, I'm going to say, I'm looking to ex exhibit ambidextrous Christianity. If you hear the word right, in our culture, right means conservative. Left means liberal. Okay, so you could say, well, Eric, I, I thought you leaned right. Oh, I, my propensity is always right. I am like classic conservative in so many regards. However, as a believer, my desire, and one of the things I'm always sensing God do is to not define myself by conservatism, nor to define myself by republicanism, for instance, but to define myself by Jesus. And that means at times that I will do things and say things that don't appease a conservative or don't appease a republican. And I'm okay with that. And I am not, my goal is not to be, uh, liberal as the response to that, or to be Democrat. My desire is to be Christian. And so when I say ambidextrous Christianity, I want to use both hands simultaneously to the degree that they were both designed to be used. In other words, a left hand has value, so does a right. And I want to use them both. And ironically, it's interesting because I almost feel like it's a spiritual reality in my life. I am semi-ambidextrous. I eat with my left, I write with my left, and I do sports with my right. 
And so maybe that is why God made me that way in the first place, because if you follow this ministry, you're going to recognize that I very, very rarely please both sides with the, the way I give a message. And it really probably bothers people, but you know, some people still linger because they're intrigued. Uh, they're like, how did he get away with that? And he's still alive. So both hands, right and left. Right, I wanna be solid on truth. Left, I wanna be soft in heart. You know, you call it the bleeding heart liberal. They're soft in heart. Well, guess what? That's a good quality. Don't throw it out. However, I do not want to be uh, soft on truth. I wanna be solid on truth and soft in heart. So here's a right, firm with scripture. Left, gentle with impartation. What I'm about to go into is a, full of landmines. And I need supernatural grace to navigate through this in a way where if someone of a different persuasion than me was listening, they would at least feel honored. They would feel cared for. They would sense that I get it as opposed to just being offended because I come across with dogmatism. And I say, this is just the way it's always been. This is the way I prefer it. And so therefore, you know, this is the way it's gonna be. And that is an unhealthy way to win those that you desire to see Jesus and be transformed by Jesus. Numbers 20, 14 through 17. This will give us sort of an understanding of how I'm going to approach this. So we have Moses leading the children of Israel. It is at the end portion of the age in which all of the uh, leaders have died. Aaron has just passed away at this time. And it, Moses is just about to you know, say goodbye as well. However, he's leading his people to the promised land. It is time. And there is a nation called Edom, which is the descendants of Esau, that he is going to approach they are brothers in a sense. Just like you look at your fellow citizens of this country, they're of the same stuff. They're American, but they're different than you. They think different, they reason different. And so you're gonna see Moses come to them and appeal to actually traverse through their land. Now Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, you know all the hardship that has befallen us, how our fathers went down to Egypt and we dwelt in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians afflicted us and our fathers. When we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent the angel and brought us up out of Egypt. Now here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your border. Please let us pass through your country. We will not pass through fields or vineyards, nor will we drink water from wells. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. Now, it's, the reason I'm gonna clip it there is because the king of Edom declined. And it's like, that's not as exciting as what I would prefer right now, which is I want to uh, even appeal to the world out there that may think different than me and say, I'd like to pass through these topics. Now, I want to assure that my goal is not to harm this territory. It's not to harm anyone in this territory territory, but I want to pass through. I'm not going to go to the right or to the left. I want to stay on the king's highway, but could I pass through these topics? You see, most people would say, you're not allowed to talk about that. And it's an interesting point to bring up. Am I not allowed to talk about racial issues? Can I not talk about what the black people have gone through if I'm not black? Uh, I, how are we supposed to deal with these issues if we can't deal with the issues? But I'm Making a petition and appeal, can I pass through this country? I'm not going to go to the right or to the left. I'm going to stay on the king's highway. 
the King's Highway. I'm gonna call it this. Historically, it was not this, it was the King of Edom's Highway. However, I'm going to take that same definition and say that is our walkway right there. It's the way of honor, it's the way of love, it's the way of Jesus. It's not right or left. I, I gave my fingers the wrong direction. It's not right or left. Proverbs 4.27, do not turn to the right or the left. Remove your foot from evil. Isn't it interesting that placing your foot in evil has to do with going to the right or to the left? When we do that denominationally, we bring division. When we do it politically, we bring division. Now, I know some of you, you know, if you're talking politics, are gonna be like, Eric, you're the sappiest character alive if you think that we can't take decided uh, positions on these issues and expect to change our culture. I totally get it, believe me. What I'm saying is my approach to this topic, the, this series, is I, my goal is not to go to the right or to the left. I am a minister of the gospel, I am not a politician. My goal isn't to stir Congress up to pass some law, that it has nothing to do with my agenda. My agenda is to stir the body of Christ up to live out with love in this generation. Isaiah 30, 21, your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left, I want to have that voice behind me saying, Eric, this way, no, this way, let's stay on the king's highway. My goal is to walk the center line because the right does not always behave right and the left often has left out the truth. That was my little creative way of starting this out. In 1914, which is our starting point for this, even though we'll dance around and hit all sorts of different dates even outside of my target, in 1914, America is arguably the most racially prejudiced and racially segregated nation on earth. Now, Woodrow Wilson at the time would never have wanted you to think that. He wanted to present America as the most free nation on earth. And yet there is a sector of our society that would, if they had a voice, argue the opposite. And my goal is not to, again, stir things up by saying things. I'm just trying to be as plain spoken as possible. And in 1933, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's the German Christian theologian, many of you have heard of Dietrich, is going to come over to the United States. At this exact time, Hitler is going to be coming into power in Germany. And he is going to see something when he is here that shocks him. And that is the way the white people treat the black person. He, can't, he has no words for it. He's like, it's a blind spot in the Christians of America. And he's going to make the statement, we do not have such a blind spot in Germany. And he is going to go back to Nazi Germany. Isn't that just sort of an ironic twist? Because in Nazi Germany, they have... I don't even know if you could call it a blind spot. It was a pretty forward statement where it was a declaration that the Jewish people were the problem. They were the hindrance to the finances. They were the hindrance to the war effort. They were a hindrance to the forward movement of Germany and they must be dealt with. All of us here in America looked over at the way the, the, the Nazis were treating the Jews and were horrified. We could not imagine a people being belittled because of their race. And yet, in our own territory, we could not see the hypocrisy. We live in a very different culture than 1914, and I'm gonna call it an inverted culture. 
where, whatever we could say was emphasized back then has been completely inverted to the point where now what rules in our culture is very different than ruled back then. BLM, woke, cancel culture, the LGBTQ plus movement choice, like pro-choice, critical race theory, anti-Americanism, the exact opposite. Those were the things that the FBI was stamping out. Now these are the things being elevated and that which stands against these things is being stamped out. We are in an inverted culture, but that's actually good for you to recognize why. In some ways, we are a reactionary culture because of the fact that we didn't walk the king's highway. We didn't walk with love, we walked with dogmatism. The seedbed of this insanity that we currently live in, 1914 and 1974. That's why it's important to know. The paralysis of sensitivity. When This is what I'm going to describe as something that we are struggling with today. We're all very aware of the culture in which we live. No one really, really even needs to teach us about it. You feel it. You imbibe it at every turn. The paralysis of sensitivity is when you do nothing, say nothing, and stand there staring at issues because you are so afraid of doing the wrong thing saying the wrong thing and being called a racist or being canceled because you didn't do it correctly. There is an entire rule book of how you are to be correct today. And if you are not correct, you will be canceled. And no one wants to be canceled. It was like being removed from the synagogue back in the early days of Christianity. That's the last thing we want is to be canceled. And so there's a delicacy which creates a paralysis for many of us. So I'm going to give a series disclaimer. I am going to miss it throughout this series. I will say things in a manner that is possibly insensitive. I will likely offend every person listening at least somewhere along the way. And technically speaking, I'm okay with that. As long as I say what I say with love, in love and out of love, then I'm open to doing this imperfectly. There are a lot of reasons, big ones, that I should just keep my mouth shut and let the church continue to fumble this golden opportunity to share Jesus Christ with a dying world but I've never been very good at staying silent when I'm being pressed by the Holy Spirit to speak up. It is my hope that you look past my imperfect delivery to see a perfect Savior and learn to love him more. There's a guy named Max Schmeling, and I'm going to just sort of stick his face on the screen and say, yeah, like that. The reason I'm starting with this is I want to show you a character, and I want to say, yeah, the way he did it is the way I'm interested in us doing it. But now I'm going to take him off the screen and I'm going to go back in time, okay? Because you guys don't really know this guy yet. If you've been listening very closely, you would have heard his name mentioned up to this point. But I'm going to now just stick him on the screen and then go back in time. But first, let's take a trip to 1910. So remember, our, our series is between 1914 and 1974, and you're already feeling like I'm violating it. It's like, well, what, what are we doing in 1910? So here's a character named Jack, Jack Johnson. And you'll see by the picture that he is a black man. And that might not stand out to you. However, this is one of the great rarities in early American history, is that this black man was allowed to fight for the world championship in boxing. Now, that, many people would say it was a mistake that it was even allowed. However, the circumstances that came about, he slipped through the cracks, and guess what? He won. Now we have a problem, guys. You see... Most of you don't understand the nature of America in 1910. 
when we say we want to go back to the good old days of America, you have to be watchful of what you're saying. It's like saying you want to go back to the early church. Just make sure you don't want to go back to Corinth. And the same thing is true in early America. There are some wonderful attributes of early America. Our constitutional republic, the ideas behind it are brilliant. However, we have some problems that we carted into our country. And we have struggled with knowing how to deal with them ever since. So Jack Johnson is going to expose some of those challenges because he is the heavyweight champion of the world. No one can beat him. And he is roughing up every single white opponent that comes up to try and dethrone him. And we have an issue because he's getting cocky. And when a black man gets cocky, this is not allowed in America. So the story of Jack Johnson and the dangers of treading upon the Jim Crow etiquette. Now I'm saying a lot that you may not understand. For instance, the word Jim Crow or the phrase Jim Crow, it's actually not a character, it's not a guy in history named Jim Crow. It's, uh, it's a statement that makes sense to early America, especially from Reconstruction on, which is after the Civil War, after the Emancipation Proclamation from uh, Abraham Lincoln. But there are going to be something known as Jim Crow laws. And they're going to make sure that the black people know their place. So this guy, Jack Johnson, is going to tread upon Jim Crow laws. Whoa, whoa, whoa. How could he dare do such a thing? So since you don't know what Jim Crow laws are or Jim Crow etiquette, I'm going to give you a crash course. So this is a quick tutorial on Jim Crow etiquette, a training of a young black boy in 1910. So say we have a young black boy in front of us. This is how we could train him. Listen closely, because violating this racial etiquette in even the smallest way will place your life and the lives of your family at risk. Rule number one, remember your position. The white person is superior here in America. They get served first. They get the best education, the best opportunities, and the best treatment. This is their country, and they have graciously opened their doors to you and allowed you to live here. Remember that, and things will go better for you. Rule number two, remember, the white is more important than you. So they take precedence, always. In every situation, you defer to the white person. If they are walking down the sidewalk that you are standing on, move out of the way, even to the other side of the street if necessary, lest you hinder or inconvenience them in any way. The phrase is give whites the wall, which means when sharing a sidewalk, you get the street side, they get the wall side. This is imperative. Don't ever question this principle. They always get the more convenient, more comfortable, and more pleasant option. If they are riding the bus you are on and there are no more seats, you must give them your seat. Rule number three, when you address a white man, you call him boss or captain. You do so with respect and humility in your voice. In doing so, you make it clear he is better than you. And when his white kids show up, you call him massa and make it clear that they are better than you. If you know the white person well, then you may be able to refer to them as Mr. John or Miss Mary, but only if you know them well. You must always deal agreeably and in a non-threatening way with a white person. And even if they are wrong, mistaken, and disturbed, you never mention it. Rule number four, always remove your cap when talking with a white person. Under no circumstances can you assume an air of equality with them. Rule number five, don't taint the stuff. When you come to a restaurant, don't taint the restaurant's utensils or plates by using them. Instead, bring your own bucket or tin pail. When you buy clothes, never try them on. A white person will never buy those clothes if you dare to soil them by putting it on. 
And this applies to shoes, hats, and scarves too. Never try them on. The white person is highly sensitized to what their things may have touched. Rule number six, read the signs. When it says Negroes and dogs not allowed, heed that sign. Always sit in the buzzard roost at the theater. That's the upper balcony. And only go to the state fair on colored day and never on a day that is not designated for you to attend. Rule number seven, use the correct entrance. Don't ever go in through the white door on a public building. You must use the black door, which was usually in the alley out back. Rule number eight, don't ever look at a white woman that way. Don't ever talk to a white woman that way. Don't ever think that you are right for a white woman. You stay with your own color, that's how you survive. Rule number nine, expect the whites to use violence against you if you ever break any of these inviolable laws of social etiquette. Now, I'd love to stop just right there and see how you guys are doing. This is a very, very uncomfortable topic. There's nothing fun about this. That is so utterly disturbing, and I get it. It's, of course, the reason I'm bringing it up. Jack Johnson, he violated Jim Crow etiquette. He bragged. He strutted about town in his flashy car. He crowned his teeth in gold. He gave off an air of self-confidence. Uh-oh, and he dared to date a white woman. So this is a major issue. In 1915, we're going to have the resurgence of something known as the Ku Klux Klan. It is all in stride with what is happening here. And Jack Johnson doesn't know his place in early America here in 1910. He doesn't get it. He is threatening a social order. So Jack London, we have a lot of Jacks and Johns in this story, but Jack London is publicly going to call for an answer, and it's known historically as the Great White Hope. And so here's Jack London's uh, statement. Jim Jeffries must now emerge from his alfalfa farm and remove that golden smile from Jack Johnson's face. Jeff, it's up to you. The white man must be rescued. Now, what's funny is I've always enjoyed Jack London's writings, you know, so it's somewhat disturbing to see this, right? This is normal back then. This is politically correct back then. And so Jack London is just walking in stride with what is common thinking. So this is going to lead to something we could call the fight of the century. Of course, we're going to have a few of those. But it's July 4th, 1910. I don't know why they chose Reno, Nevada outdoors on July 4th. Can you think of a hotter environment than that? But this is going to be Jack Johnson versus James J. Jeffries. We got J's everywhere. And he is known as the Great White Hope. John, James J. Jeffries has, has been the greatest boxing champion of history. And he is undefeated and he retires. And then that's when Jack Johnson emerges. And so Jack London is calling on James J. Jeffries to come out of retirement and to silence this black man who is defying the system. He is... He's going to cause other black people to think that they could be more. That could threaten the equilibrium of culture. So here's a, the prize fight poster. There's always a poster for uh, the marketing purposes for the, 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 the bouts. So it's called the incomparable prize fight. Isn't that cool to see those old posters? And so here's our guy, James J. Jeffries. Uh, pretty cool photo. It's even signed by him. 
He's the retired, undefeated heavyweight champion of the world. Everyone knew he was a little out of shape. He was 80 pounds overweight. But you know what? He had decided he was going to come out because the social order of America was hanging in the balance. And he needed to correct this. So he's going to train for around eight months to get rid of his 80 pounds of extra you know, weight. And he's going to put the black man in his place. James J. Jeffries says it this way, my goal is to win the title back for the white race. I am going into this fight for the sole purpose of proving that a white man is better than a Negro. Again, I'd, there's moments in this I'd really like to pause and just take a temperature reading uh, inside of your soul to see how you are doing as we walk through this. The New York Times had an editorial that said, if the black man wins, speaking of Jack Johnson, Thousands and thousands of his ignorant brothers will misinterpret his victory as justifying claims to much more than mere physical equality with their white neighbors. Jack Johnson can't win. This would disturb the entire system of America. Jack Johnson walked to the ring a lonely man on July 4th, 1910. The audience was white, and they were not cheering for him. I mean, I... This is a, a really challenging situation. I'm not like supportive of Jack Johnson's bragging, you know, him sort of flaunting what he's doing. It's sort of like, buddy, this, there's a better way of doing this, right? But I understand what he represents. And I understand how the black community could look at something like that and go, please, Lord, help Jack to win. We need to get out of this oppression. But Jack Johnson won leading to the Johnson-Jeffrey riots in 1910. The black people celebrate, and the white people needed to put that down. They needed to maintain social order. You need to recognize why the Ku Klux Klan is going to reemerge in this time. Because the black people are beginning to move. You have the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, which is going to cause the common people to realize that they can stick it to the government. And you're going to have the advent of communism, which is going to appeal to those that are oppressed. And you're going to have a movement that is going to begin to take place. And you're going to have a government known as the American government, which is struggling to know how to deal with this. How do you truly have a constitutional government and oppress a people? That doesn't seem right. But at the same time, we have an order here. We have a system. We have a way of doing things. At this time, it was segregation. Everything was separate. Just, you know, it's equality, but with separation. So pause, an important point for consideration. Because I'm not exactly sure how well you're doing or if you think I'm doing well. Uh, you know, it's like, it's, it's some, in some ways, it's wrong to even bring these things up. And because they sound like tainted goods, like somehow there's a spin on this. I'm trying to take all spin off. Just trying to give you some data. Evaluating history with a lens of grace. Recognizing that the perceived social correctness and defined cultural decency of the time, though wrong in hindsight, was not clearly seen as wrong at the time. So what many of you are struggling with in seeing this was not actually deemed wrong at the time. It was moral. It was under the banner of a Christian nation. It was actually appropriate and right. And most bad things hide under that canopy. So I want to give you just a, a few samples that maybe would help you understand this. Hatred of Nazis in 1939. Okay, now, 
why would we hate the Nazis? Well, what they're doing is evil. What Hitler's doing in trying to overcome Europe, that's just plain wrong. What he's doing to the Jews is despicable. And so a hatred towards the Nazis makes total sense. And most of you would be like, yeah. In fact, still in, 19, in, in 2023, I was going to call this 2024, 2023, we still would validate that, that a hatred for the Nazis is good. Why? Because it is something that is disrupting the order and the progression of nations in a healthy way. Hatred of the Japanese in 1941. Remember when they bombed Pearl Harbor? How dare they? Now, most people recognize that we overreacted towards the Japanese. Yeah, you know, and so the Doolittle Raids was just venom and revenge, and that's usually probably not the best thing, but at the time it was totally correct. You could be a Christian and hate the Japanese, and you would be deemed right. Whenever that canopy gets into place, it can really disturb Christian witness. Hatred of communists in 1945. So we finished World War II, and Stalin, instead of agreeing to what was previously discussed of pulling out of Eastern Europe, he stakes claim to Eastern Europe, and he sets up his rule there. Oh, the communists. And this is going to lead to all sorts of nonsense that you'll get to hear about in this series. And those communists... I mean, that's just pure evil. And so the hatred of communists is a very, very real thing that we have had under the canopy here in America that we have hosted. So can you understand that if the same canopy were in place for the preservation of America, because that's what we're talking about, the preservation of America, if you felt that the black people were threatening the preservation of America, it leads to the same conclusion. It's called Americanism. The blinding power of nationalism. When the purity and protection of your nation's people and purposes edges out brotherly kindness. There's a reason why we could hate the Germans or the Nazis. There's a reason why we could hate the Japanese. There's a reason why we could hate the communists. It's because they are violating our nation's purity and our nation is vulnerable because of it. So brotherly kindness, throw it out the window. We don't care about their souls. We actually want them to go to hell. That's what they deserve. This is actually not how Jesus reasons. And resultingly, this is bringing about a cancer in our country. The rule of thumb for evaluating history. Apply the same grace toward others as you know God has shown toward you. Boy, that would change our thinking quite quick. And like King Hezekiah, the heavenly grade given is not based on the start, but on the finish. And like King David, the indiscretion doesn't always warrant dismissal, especially if there is repentance that follows. But don't be an idiot and defend something indefensible. Wrong is still wrong, even if it be your favorite historical character that perpetrated it or your cherished political party that espoused it. King Hezekiah is actually going to start wrong, but finish well. And he's remembered as a king that did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. David is a man who is remembered in history, even by God, as a man after his own heart. Even though, boy, does he have a blemish on his record. Our America has blemish on its record. It does. And to try and overlook that actually doesn't help us solve the problem. It's actually more important for us to acknowledge what is real about our country so that we can help, help be helpful and address it. I love our country, and I'm not against our country. I'm desirous for our country to work well. However, we have issues in our history that many of us just try and bury over and say, well, I have nothing to do with that. I didn't have that decision. Why are they treating me this way? Why is everyone acting this way? 
These are deep-seated things that are in the realm of like feuds. Like if you are born British, you hate the French. If you're born French, you hate the British. If you're born French, you also hate the Germans. If you're born uh, British, then you also sort of have a distaste for the German, but you can put up with them. In other words, it's cultural. And we have inherited certain cultural ideologies that are just in the water that we need to be very aware of and we need to purge out of our system. 1933, the rise of Hitler. So Hitler is going to come into power, Adolf Hitler, for those of you that don't know, sort of a bad character in history. And you can listen to my Spiritual Lessons from World War II series and get a good dose of Hitler. So in this time, in steps the great heavyweight boxer, Max Schmeling. He is going to become heavyweight champion of the world in 1930. And so he is the prize. He is the flower of the German race. Now you have to re recognize what Hitler represents. He represents something called an Aryan supremacy, where he believes that the white man is superior. And so all of these other varieties, you know, that are of a darker skin tone, uh, and that's even in Eastern Europe. You have the Slav and you have the Jew. He believes that they are the problem and that the superior race should rule. Now, most of us don't have much difficulty in seeing that is ridiculous. Aryan supremacy? I mean, come on. However, in our own country, the meanwhile, while this is even happening, we have a form of Aryan supremacy. We just don't call it that. And we have a similar thing. We just don't create concentration camps for it. However, Hitler is going to take his pattern of social segregation. You know where he's going to get it from? America. So before we excuse ourselves too quickly, I just want us to be wide-eyed as we go through this. So in steps the great heavyweight boxer, Max Schmeling. There he is. Remember this guy? Uh, Good-looking guy. So this is going to lead to what we're going to call the fight of the century. seems like we already had the fight of the century. Well, we have this same fight over and over again. And it's Joe Lewis versus Max Schmeling. Now, Joe Lewis is a black man, as was Jack Johnson. Jack Johnson was his inspiration. Joe Lewis is going to fight all the odds, and he is going to just be beaten up everywhere. He was 24-0, I think, at the time he's going to take on Max Schmeling. He was unstoppable. And Max Schmeling, you know, the champion of the world, is going to come to the United States to meet up with Joe Lewis. Oh, this is going to be good. And so here's a, a marketing photo from uh, that first fight in 1936. Uh, black versus white is what it was. It was very clear. You know that most Americans were cheering for Max Schmeling? Because of the same thing that Jack Johnson uh, posed a threat for is that the black people may think more highly of themselves than they ought if Joe Lewis beats them. Now, it's not that they were fans of what was going on in Nazi Germany at the time. It's just that war hadn't broken off. This is in 1936. The war is going to start in 1939. So we didn't have a negative view of the Germans necessarily at this time. We're just a concerned view. And uh, many of our country are from Germany. We have a high German population over here. So Max Schmeling was not a threat. He was just white-skinned. And this is going to take place on Juneteenth. So this isn't a small uh, thing. Juneteenth is going to be the day of emancipation, a celebration for the black people of emancipation. So this is a huge thing. For Joe Lewis to beat Max Schmeling on this day would be massive. 
But for Max Schmeling to put down Joe Lewis on this day would be pretty impressive too. So you guys feel the tensions that are here? The impossible happened. Joe Lewis lost. Now, for you, that might not have any emotional content to it. But to the black community, this was possibly one of the most devastating things that has ever happened in any of their lives. Was that Joe Lewis lost. He was their hope. To them, they just sort of planted their hope in Joe Lewis's career. It's like if he can win, maybe all of us can win. So Joe Lewis Barrow Jr., that's his son. Uh, that's actually Joe Lewis's name was Joe Lewis Barrow. Uh, so Joe Lewis Barrow Jr., his son, said he, speaking of Joe Lewis, his dad, felt he'd let the entire black race down because he was not supposed to lose that fight. He was supposed to win it and win it with great applause. See, Joe Lewis at the time was around 22, 23 years old. Max Schmelin was past his prime. He was 30. I mean, boy, that's old, isn't it? And... Uh, Joe Lewis had found golf at that time and was spending a lot of time golfing. In fact, he spent more time golfing than he did preparing for the fight. But it was a, he was a shoo-in. He was like eight years younger than Max Schmeling. Pretty easy to beat this guy. And Max Schmeling, you know, had had some physical challenges. It's pretty much a shoo-in that he's going to win. And he didn't train hard for it. And he lost. And everyone was shocked. Langston Hughes, who's a black man who, who wrote the Harlem, for the Harlem Renaissance, said this. He's talking about the black community here. I walked down 7th Avenue and saw grown men weeping like children and women sitting in the curbs with their heads in their hands. All across the country that night when the news came that Joe was knocked out, people cried. No one else in the United States has ever had such an effect on Negro emotions or on mine. This is a, just a statement from Wikipedia. Sorry to use Wikipedia, guys. In his native land, Schmelin was regarded as a hero and promoted by the Nazi propaganda machine as a perfect example of German supremacy over the rest of the world by virtue of his defeat of the current champion, Lewis. The government ordered parades and rallies in his honor. Now, that might be sort of normal behavior for the Germans, but why does it sort of upset us? It's like, those turkeys, what do they think they're doing celebrating Max Schmelin? So now here's where we get to the point of what I'm going to bring up today, the rematch. 1938, we're right at the point or the crux of war in Europe. 1939 is when Hitler is going to invade Poland and that's what's going to ultimately spike the start of World War II. But this rematch, June 22nd, 1938, one of the biggest events in the last century. And probably very few of you know about it, but it was a massive thing. So there it is. Uh, the tensions are high. Uh, Max Schmeling has no hope of regaining that. You know, this is for the heavyweight title of the world. Joe Lewis will be ruined if he loses this again. Probably never get a good fight again. This is his career that is hanging on the lines. And he's not that old, right? This was a, a fight that was good versus evil. The Nazis were now considered evil. And, of course, America's good, always. And freedom versus fascism. Roosevelt versus Hitler, the common man versus the Aryan arrogance, the fight of the century. This is a huge deal in American history, huge deal for Americans. And it's a watershed point that is actually rather interesting. So here's a Nazi publicity release, June 1938. A black man cannot defeat Schmeling. Why? Well, you do know that Schmeling is a picture of the superior race, right? So a black man cannot defeat Schmeling. Schmeling is evidence of German Aryan superiority. His victory purse from the fight will be used to build more German tanks. 
How do you think the Americans were feeling about this? The Fuhrer, Adolf Hitler, has lifted the nationwide 3 a.m. curfew in Germany so that the cafes and bars can carry the broadcasts of Schmeling's victory. <laughs> Emphasize the word victory. They're so confident that Schmeling is going to defeat Lewis. I mean, he just beat him in 1936. Of course, two years later, he'll beat him in 1938. He's superior, guys. This is nothing but a black man. Can you feel the tensions, guys? And I don't know. The tensions could be inside of you, too, as they should be. Franklin Roosevelt invites uh, Joe Lewis into uh, the White House and says this, lean over, Joe, so I, remember, he sits in a wheelchair, he has polio. Lean over, Joe, so I can feel your muscles. And he feels Joe's muscles. He says, Joe, we need muscles like yours to beat Germany. Now, that might sound like sort of an odd thing for me to quote. This had never happened before. For a black man to be invited into the White House and to have the President of the United States say, we need more like you. This is a big moment in history. Joe Lewis said this, here I was a black man. I had the burden of representing all America. They tell me I was responsible for a lot of change in race relations in America. White Americans, even while some of them still were lynching black people in the South, were depending on me to KO Germany. That's knockout Germany. I knew I had to get Schmeling good. Max Schmeling walked to the ring, a lonely man. <laughs> Remember Jack Johnson, how he walked to the ring? Now Max Schmeling comes to America and remember last time, two years earlier, who were they cheering for? The white crowd was cheering for Max Schmeling. Something has shifted, and this something that is shifting actually is going to have a big effect on American history. The American audience was not cheering for Max Schmeling. Who were they cheering for? They were cheering for Joe Lewis. This has never happened before, guys. New York Times wrote it this way, as Schmeling later wrote in his autobiography, he made his way to the ring that night under a hailstorm of banana peels, cigarette packs, soda cups, and spit. This is what Max Schmeling said, never in my life did 100 meters seem, seem this long. <laughs> the fabled fight that redirected American history. So this is that uh, fight announcer, you know how they have the crackly radio sound, he's like, Lewis measures him, right to the body, a left to the jaw, and Schmeling is down, the count is five, six, seven, eight, the men are in the ring, the fight is over on a technical knockout, and Schmeling is beaten in one round. Lewis trained for this fight, and knocks Schmeling out in the first round, and America is on its feet. And it's the first time in American history, get this guys, that white people cheered a black man. Isn't that just an amazing thought? It almost gives me tingles to ponder that. What's going on in our country <laughs> that that would be the case? Come on, people. Don't you want to say, come on, America. What, what's wrong with you? At the same time, blind spots are very real phenomenons. And they can fall under a canopy of nationalism or patriotism or doing that which is right. And even as Christians, we can participate in them. I don't like it when liberal agenda begins to bring up issues that are actually true, but the way they try and solve them is wrong. And then here we are oftentimes in a conservative bent, acting like there isn't a problem or decrying it as some kind of fanaticism, when in actuality there has been a real issue in our country. And it would be really good for us to know wisely how to address it. This is Joe Lewis's son saying, my father was on the front page of every newspaper. 
And then he adds, without killing a white person. That's the only reason a black man could ever be on the front of a newspaper, is if he was in big trouble. But his father, Joe Lewis, was on the front, of every, front page of every newspaper. I think all of America admired him, and black America had a special affection. Many young boys were named Lewis or Joe, and many young girls were named Marva, after my mother. And that was because of the admiration that they had for my father. Max Schmeling said it this way, as we drove through Harlem in an ambulance after the second fight, so he had a very bad kidney injury. I mean, he was, this guy was knocked out in one round. This is the heavyweight champion of the world, knocked out in one round, unprecedented. By the way, I think uh, not, uh, Hitler had them pull the plug on the, uh, on the fight feed from, from America so that no one in Germany actually heard the end of the fight. Isn't that interesting? Once they began to realize that Max Schmelin was losing, they didn't want anyone in Germany to witness it. But so Max Schmelin is driving in an ambulance after the second fight, and there were noisy dancing crowds. Bands had left the nightclubs and bars and were playing and dancing on the sidewalks and streets. The whole area was filled with celebration noise and saxophones continuously punctuated by, calling, by the calling of Joe Lewis's name. The New York Times said, others weren't as thrilled. Part of the post-fight lore, difficult to confirm now, is that the German broadcast of the bout was cut off before the fight ended. The emotional fight of black and white America. Now, this series that I'm doing is not just on racial tensions. There's a whole bunch of things that are going to be thrown into here. And I'm dealing with a lot of things that are very uncomfortable. I don't know exactly why these are so uncomfortable. I remember reading about a guy writing in, I think it was like 2004, about communism in the 1950s. And he said, basically, it's starting to get a little uh, safer now to be able to even mention it. But since Joseph McCarthy was censured by the Senate in like 1954, 56, somewhere in there, no one has really been able to talk about it. And so you can't really bring it up. And that, that rings true to me at so many levels. I understand there's certain things we are not allowed to talk about. And if we don't, we'll never address them. There are issues inside of us that need to be touched. The only way to touch them is to address them. Maya Angelou said, when Joe lost, she's a black lady, when Joe lost in 1936, my, gr my race groaned. It was our people falling. It was another lynching, yet another black man hanging on a tree. This might be the end of the world. If Joe lost, we were back in slavery and beyond help. It would all be true, the accusations that we were lower types of human beings, only a little higher than the apes. You can see the emotion in this people. And then she says, when Joe won in 1938, the joy was unbounded, champion of the world, a black boy, some black mother's son. He was the strongest man in the world. People drank Coca-Cola like ambrosia and ate candy bars like Christmas. Thomas Hauser said it this way, it was the first time that many white Americans openly rooted for a black man against a white opponent. It was also the first time that many people heard a black man referred to simply as the American. Max Schmeling, Hitler's poster boy of Aryan superiority. What's your opinion on Max Schmeling after all this? You guys a little disappointed in this guy? I mean, come on. Uh, and so this is my whole point. I've built all of this just to get to here. It's rough being Max Schmeling. The Nazi propaganda has gotten us all convinced he's a first-rate rascal. The true story of Max Schmeling. He refused to become a Nazi. He rejected the dagger of honor from Hitler. 
unprecedented. No one would reject the dagger of honor from Hitler. He refused to fire his Jewish trainer, Joe Jacobs. Hitler commanded him to fire his trainer, who was Jewish, and he refused. Whoa, who, who is this guy? He was sent to the front lines as a paratrooper in World War II as punishment. 33 years old, way beyond draft age, had injuries, and Hitler, to punish him, sends him as a paratrooper. He survives. He hid two young Jewish boys in his hotel room during a Gestapo search and saved their lives, risking his to do it. He visited American POWs in German concentration camps during the war and sought better conditions for them. When Joe Lewis landed on hard times financially, he helped him through it. He paid Joe Lewis's funeral costs. Who is this guy? Remember at the very beginning I said, yeah, like that. How do we address what we're dealing with? See, there are different skin colors in here. And we all are going to appropriate this a little differently. Some of us, it's very personal. <laughs> the diminishment of black people we take personally because of our skin color. I have two kids with black skin. In a strange sense, I take it personally on their behalf. It's very odd, you know, just walking through this personally as I go through this. At the same, same time, some of us are appropriating it from a different side, which is we feel a little like Max Schmeling, which we are guilty and the verdict is already out. We're condemned for being white supremacists and we've never even thought about something like this before. It's like, hey, I, I wasn't there. I had nothing to do, that, do with that. I didn't, uh, you know, boo uh, Jack Johnson. I, had, I wasn't against Joe Lewis. I'm for him. And so we're confused. And this is a very common argument that takes place from the white side today. Is like, look, I, I had nothing to do with that. I don't have a racist bone in my body. And yet what we don't realize is that our skin color indicates something in this racial tension. Just like if someone is from Germany during 1933 through 1945, you're immediately concluded to be a Nazi. And yet not everyone was a Nazi. Not everyone supported what Hitler was doing. And many people died standing against it. And yet we have these things to walk through. Max Schmeling said this, looking back, I'm almost happy I lost that fight. Just imagine if I would have come back to Germany with a victory. I had nothing to do with the Nazis, but they would have given me a medal. A victory over Joe Lewis would have made me forever the Aryan show horse of the Third Reich. The New York Times said this, veterans groups, among others, blocked Schmeling's initial attempts to return to the United States after World War II. He got a visa in 1954, however, and paid a surprise visit to Joe Lewis, then living in Chicago. I said, this is uh, Max Schmeling speaking, I said, Joe, you didn't believe all those bad things they wrote about me. Schmeling later wrote, he said he knew that it was all bull, and so we struck up a, a warm friendship. I was listening to a documentary on Max Schmeling, uh, and I guess he literally, the whole reason he came back was just to communicate to Joe Lewis that he was never against him, and that he was always a big fan, and that he wanted to be his friend. And, but they kept blocking him. All the veterans wouldn't allow this Nazi to come back into the country. Finally, he gets the chance and he calls Joe Lewis off the golf course, which his son was jokingly saying, no one ever gets called. You know, Joe Lewis, nothing calls him off the golf course. He said, my, my, my life and my daughter's, boy, I'm butchering that. My, I was born and my sister was born while my dad was on the golf course and even that didn't get him off. But Max Schmeling coming to town got him off the golf course. And they hugged and both sobbed 
That's the part that's not in this quote. There's something beautiful there that I, I just wish I could bottle. They were to see each other several times before Lewis's death in 1981. When Lewis was profiled on the television show, This Is Your Life, Schmeling showed up, as he did when Frank Sinatra staged a benefit for Lewis in Las Vegas. So Lewis is going to die. He is going to have a very, very difficult life from this point forward. The IRS is going to, Lewis is going to win two uh, bouts, championship bouts, uh, each worth about $500,000 a piece in that time period, which would have been a significant amount of money. And he is going to donate that to uh, the war effort. But he's going to take the check and he's just going to sign it over. And the IRS, which could have taken a different tact in how they handled this, said that was income and he needs to pay. He had a million dollars back tax debt on it and he couldn't pay it. And so he's actually going to go back into boxing in his later life to try and pay his debt and he's going to get totally roughed up with brain injuries and various things. I mean, it's just a terrible, it's actually a really heart-rending story to hear what's going to happen to this man, but Max Schmeling is going to support him. And Max Schmeling is going to personally fund his funeral. And I mean, it's, it's truly a remarkable story. The guy's 6,000 miles away. And you were all upset with this guy. You know, he was a scoundrel, he was a rascal, and yet he's Joe Lewis's biggest fan. Listen to what he said at the funeral. I didn't only like him, I loved him. So there's Max Schmelin and Joe Lewis. Isn't that a great story, guys? The difference between being a German and being a Nazi. We need to know the difference because there is a difference. The difference between being white and a white supremacist. There's a difference. Just because you have white skin does not mean you need to participate in that attitude. The difference between being James J. Jeffries and Max Schmeling. Both fought a black man. Both were paraded as the solution to the black man, you know, to put him in his place. But Max Schmeling had a completely different attitude. Lessons learned from Max Schmeling. It's possible to be German, to have shaken hands with Hitler, to have fought and bled for the Germans in World War II, and yet still not think or act like Hitler. The lessons for the white man. It's likely that you look a bit like that bigoted rascal, Max Schmeling. You know how important it is for us to just get it, for us to understand the tensions that have existed before us so we understand that even though we have white skin and we may not have done anything, it still puts us in a position where we need to go the extra mile to show something. Lessons for the black man. It's possible that the one you think might be a bigoted rascal may actually be a dear friend of all black people. So Henry Levin was one of the Jewish men that was saved by Max Schmeling. So this is what he said later in life. He said, I'm pleased to say that there are good Germans and Max Schmeling is their leader. You know, as I go through some of these things, you're going to be very disgusted with the behavior of white people. And I'm not going to say that black people are going to respond well either. I'm not trying to take a side on who's right, who's wrong in every situation. However, there is a very real oppression that has taken place in our history. And it will disturb you, and I don't think that's bad, but it's going to 
lead to that point where you need to make a decision of how your Christianity is going to showcase itself. How do you deal with the Joe Lewises in your life? The culture is trying to pitch you against them. How are you going to handle it? And how do you pull a Max Schmeling? How do you turn the tables on the storyline so that you can actually be the worker of Jesus and his grace towards them as opposed to follow the party line and fit the role that everyone knows you're going to do? Yeah, every conservative behaves this way. That's exactly what the LGBTQ plus community says right now. It's like, oh, classic Christian right there. That's of course how they would behave. Let's change the storyline. I want us not to be known by our politics and just our doctrine. I want to be known by love. The same thing Jesus says. You will know my disciples by their love for one another. And then we can extend that and say, and I want the world to also recognize that we love them. The reason Jesus came and died is to set them free. Don't allow the enemy to bait us and to turn us away from our clear mission. We're missionaries. We expect the world to behave like the world but we also should expect the church to behave like the church. Father, I ask that you would sensitize us. I don't know what a message like this can do to start that process, but I pray that you would use it. Lord, we desire to walk the king's highway in this life, the way of honor, the way of love, the way of Jesus. Teach us how to do that. Teach us how to not swing rights or stand to the left, but to truly walk where Jesus walked, the narrow way. Lord, we love you, and we ask that you would do a mighty work of grace in our lives. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.